I'm Ray Defterios, and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Have you ever wondered what it was like to be born a few centuries back? Perhaps you feel like you were born at a time that doesn't reward the skills you possess in the shop. Or maybe you just want to listen while I hang out with the YouTube rock star. You may know of Rex Kruger, a really influential woodworker and the creator behind the channel Rex Figures It Out. Well, recently Rex released a YouTube video on the five types of books that every woodworker should own. It was an insightful video and I'd urge you to look at it if you haven't already. I'll leave a link in the show notes. What grabbed my attention more than anything else in the episode was that he highlighted Eldrin Watson's book Country Furniture. This book is one of my favourites and I'd already started writing a review. Originally, I was going to release it as the 12th book of the podcast. But then I thought, hey, if Rex likes the book so much, and I like the book so much, maybe I could convince him to join the show and discuss it with him. I'm really happy to say that to mark the 10th episode of Hand Tool Book Review, we have a really special episode. Rex Kruger is joining me in a live chat about one of his, and coincidentally one of my favourite books, Aldrin Watson's Country Furniture. I reached out to Rex and I asked him if he'd give me 20 minutes to give me his views on the book. That was the plan, but like all plans it went out the window at the first possible opportunity. Don't get me wrong, we discussed a lot of aspects of country furniture, but we also spoke about how Rex was able to transition from a hobbyist to a professional and compare the skill levels of hobbyists versus professionals in the shops today. He gave some incredible insights into the pressure of doing woodwork as a career and we discussed why there were so many IT guys doing woodworking as a hobby. We discussed premium tools, budget tools, scrub planes, tool making, and had a bit of fun talking about lathes, both human powered and machine powered. And then Rex gave out some information about an exciting new project he's working on. The list goes on. Basically by the time we finished, I had the most incredible conversation with a really cool guy on a range of woodworking topics. Afterwards, I considered trying to trim the material down to be relevant only to the book. But there was so much good stuff that I figured this would be a completely missed opportunity. So treat this episode as a roller coaster ride through a range of topics. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did putting this together. I also hope you'll forgive the odd technical issue here and there. It was a live recording after all. Due to length, I've broken it into two podcasts. And don't worry, at the end of the second podcast, there's a full recap about country furniture where I'll expand on some of our conversation, so don't worry that the book review is going to be lost in conversation. Like always, I'll go through what you're getting in the book in some detail, as well as giving my views on why this is important, as well as some final ratings. Once you've listened to the two podcasts, I'd also really like your opinion on it. Was this format something that worked for you as a listener? Did you find it interesting? Would you like more of these? Or did you find it distracting and prefer the shorter, more focused episodes? or if you're somewhere in between. Whatever your feelings, please drop me a note at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. In particular, I'd really like to get your feedback on this topic. But without any further ado, let's get going with this episode's very special guest. So I think the first thing, you know, in terms of people who haven't heard about you, could you just tell a little bit about what got you into woodworking and how you went about that? I saw that in one of your videos, you mentioned how you could approach professional shops and they were keen on having someone who had a bit of woodworking experience. And maybe if you can just take us through that and tell us uh, how you got into it. 
Sure. Uh, so I'm actually a former academic. I taught English for the University of California for four years. And prior to that, I was in grad school for seven years. And graduate school was boring. And after I was in it for a few years, I found I really didn't like it, but I was too deep into it to leave. I had to see it through. And I started to look for things to do that would be more interesting that I could spend my time with. And I'm not 100% sure where I got the idea that I wanted to do woodworking. Um, Oh, I, I think what happened was I had grown up in a very mechanical family. My dad is a mechanic uh, as a hobby, and my brother is a mechanic professionally. So I had grown up around tools, and my wife and I moved into a new house that had a garage. And my father was um, coming to visit, and he said, hey, I could bring you a little workbench and a couple of tools for your garage if you would like. And I said, oh, that would be wonderful, because I was used to having them around the house. And he brought me a couple of things, and just as soon as I had a, a workspace, I just started making things. And I think it was an outgrowth of that boredom of um, just sitting, reading books all day and being a little bit understimulated by my studies. Having a place to do it just set me going, and I immediately started building little things for the house, and it just sort of spiraled from there. That was uh, about 12 years ago. I'm in IT as a profession and found that woodworking certainly gives you that ability to think and apply your brain. And I mean, you know, coming from academia, there's no shortage of problem solving in the workshop, if we can call it that. But at the same time, it's something completely different from sitting and working on, on a computer screen or interacting with people in, in, in meetings. It's really a tactile. It's a different thing. I find it's, a, it's an incredible release. For me, it's a, a hobby, but it, I feel like it uses the whole body. It uses the person, you know, your brain. It uses your, your skill with your hands and just an amazing way to switch off. So yeah, can certainly understand how it would be a good break from academia. I get the impression that it's very popular with people who are in software engineering, development, a lot of very cerebral and computer-related fields seem to attract woodworkers. There's some parallels because a programmer is sitting and he's trying to solve problems, you know, uh, obviously doing it in a coding manner, but he's trying to solve problems every day. So Taking that to a, a workshop and working out an order of how to go about things, putting a project plan together, if you will, sourcing, and then applying lots and lots of different skills. I mean, you, you've mentioned, I think, in one of your videos how woodworking is not a hobby, it's hundreds of hobbies. If we take carving and turning and uh, marquetry and, and any one of those sorts of things, and I, I think those, those different elements are certainly something that creates a lot of interest, if we can call it that. Yeah, you asked me before how I was able to approach shops and start working for them. And the answer is it was just a, a complete dumb accident that I started to do that. One of my neighbors had a tree fall over in their yard and it was a dogwood tree. I don't know if you have dogwood in South Africa. It is, uh, it's very hard, dense wood. It's excellent for turning. It's been prized for a long time. And I just took a saw and went over and started helping myself to a few pieces thinking my neighbor wouldn't notice. And um, someone, yeah, not, not the best idea, but I've done it a bunch of times before. People usually don't care if you take a little of the tree that fell down in their yard. And a, a gentleman pulled up in a car and stopped and rolled down the window. And I thought, oh, shoot, it's the owner. I'm going to have to talk my way out of this. And uh, the guy in the car, said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm cutting some of this tree. It's dogwood, blah, blah, blah. I'm a woodworker. And he said, yeah, I, I know it is. I own a wood shop. And I said, oh, that's great. And he said, do you do woodwork? And I said, yeah. And I explained what I did. And he said, would you like to come work for me? 
And I said, oh, I, you know, I don't think you understand. I'm a hobby woodworker. I just do things in my basement. And he said, oh, okay. Do you want to come work for me? And I said, um, I, I guess. I mean, obviously, it's one of those things where being a professional woodworker was a dream of mine, but it sounded like moving to Mars. It seemed like something that would never happen. I thought of myself as a, a white collar professional with an advanced degree and as an English teacher. And he made this offer and I didn't have anything else going on. We had moved to Ohio from California. I had quit teaching because I was unhappy with the way things were going and I didn't really know what I was going to do. So I actually didn't have a job at the moment. And here somebody was offering me a job in a wood shop. And I thought, well, this is ridiculous. Someone just offered me a job doing the thing I love to do anyway. I'm just going to take him up on this. What's the worst that could happen? And I ended up working in shops on and off for different lengths of time for a little over three years. And I worked in four different shops in that time. If a guy sees someone passionate about it, you, you know he's going to come into your shop and do his best, which uh, I guess is half the battle. And I did. I, I can't say that I was an amazing woodworker right off the bat, but I attacked the job with enormous enthusiasm every day because I thought, well, I mean, here I'm, I'm getting a shot to do this professionally and decisively move away from a profession that I just didn't find that exciting. I'm going to go at this with absolute full enthusiasm. And I think it's really worth saying to your listeners, especially people who are doing it as a hobby, the distinction between the hobbyist and the professional is an illusion. There is no set of skills or ability level that makes someone a professional. I've met many professional woodworkers who were not very good, but they were savvy business people. So for instance, if you're great at making cutting boards, which we all know aren't very difficult, and then you're also really good at marketing them and selling them, if you're selling cutting boards and paying your rent, you're a professional woodworker. Even though we all know making a cutting board isn't very difficult. So I worked with many woodworkers in the time I did it as a profession. And only one of them stands out to me as being someone who was really gifted. Most other people had a level of skill that was very similar to a hobbyist. And I guarantee you, many of the people listening to your show right now, many hobbyists are better than many woodworkers. I'm, I'm 100% convinced of it in terms of skill. The business only has a, a moderate relation to skill. You have to be good on a certain level, but you really have to understand customers and finances and deadlines, getting things out the door. Those aspects matter so much more, and, and that's what really differentiates a professional. I think that's pretty inspiring for anyone who's out there that wants to give it a go. Bob Rosieski did an analysis, you know, where he was sort of working back from the, the rates that people were charging and he was equating that to the amount of hours they, they worked. And I think your average 19th century or, you know, early 20th century woodworker, they worked hard and fast to get that money. And they, they really, you said, you know, from a skill point of view, maybe what distinguishes a professional from a, from a hobbyist is not so big. But I guess that aspect of I'm sitting with a finite amount of hours and I need to bring in the salary is very different from saying I'm working on this project. And if I don't get to it this weekend, I'll get to it next weekend or the following weekend. My daughter's turning 12 now, and I think she was nine when I promised her the wardrobe. And, you know, she, she really has to get that. If that was a piece that I was charging someone for, I would have taken a, an absolute bath behaving like that, which is just pushing it out to when I feel like doing it. Sure. And for myself, I would never try to tell someone how to run a successful woodworking business. Because even after I stopped working for shops and I worked for myself, I can say with pride that I earned a living at that, but I earned a living 
absolutely killing myself, working an unbelievable number of hours, working extremely hard, getting hurt sometimes and working then, working when I was sick. And I very quickly abandoned any idea of charging an hourly rate or even a daily rate. I had a certain amount of money I had to bring in every month and I just went absolutely 100% every second of every day to make that amount of money so we could make the mortgage. And there were months where I would look at what I had in the bank and I would think, wow, I have uh, I have three days to make $500 so that we can make the mortgage this month. And I've got to go out there and find business or figure something out or build a porch for my neighbor or whatever it is. And it was absolute heart attack <laughs> every minute of yeah. every day. And now that I've made the transition into teaching and writing about woodworking, I vastly prefer it because I still get to do woodwork working all day, but I don't have the press of deadlines anymore. And I'm honestly making more money. So even also to your to your listeners who might think, oh, I would love to do woodwork for a living. Maybe you would, but maybe you would find it extremely stressful. I found it too stressful and I'm, I'm glad to be out of uh, custom work. I think uh, maybe maybe diving in country furniture now. You mentioned that this was one of your your absolute favorite books, and I've actually, funnily enough, I've also got his book Hand Tools: Their Ways in Working, which uh, oh, is, yes. is another excellent uh, book of his. I also really enjoyed that. I have that one down at the library, and then he also has Furniture Making Plain and Simple. Is that good? Do you enjoy uh, yes, that one? Yes, I like it very much. I, I just purchased it used for a very small amount of money, and I think it's yeah. quite good. It's it's written in the same style with the same very clear uh, pencil illustrations, and it only has about seven chapters. And you can see it's a big book, so he covers an enormous amount of stuff. So it's another one that's that's great. But let's let's talk about country furniture. You're totally right. So what makes it special to you as a book? Uh, a couple of things. One is the incredible breadth of stuff that he covers. One of the things I most dislike about woodworking books is they usually try to do too many things and do a poor job. And I'm really not sure how Watson managed to do this, but he wrote a book about almost every aspect of the craft and still did a good job. And I'm a little bit at a loss to explain how he did that, but it's the combination of his excellent writing and then his illustrations are unparalleled. They just, they could not be one bit better in terms of being, they're beautiful and they also show with crystal clarity every technique or tool he's trying to show. I, I can't imagine it being better. And he was, I've done some research on Watson, he was a professional illustrator and I think uh, highly in demand. That was his main profession. And I'm not surprised. These pictures are, they're incredible. That's a very important aspect of it. I actually saw he's got Watson drawing book um, when I was, was looking on Amazon. And I think that's probably one I'm going to put on the list to buy at some point in time. I must be honest, I use SketchUp a lot more than uh, draw by hand. Um, but I think there's something creative about being able to draw by hand. And I've tried it a few times and typically given up. Uh, my wife does incredible watercolor paintings. And so she's got that artistic side and I'm nowhere near it. But I think one of these days I'm going to grab the Watson book and give it a go. And I think generally, probably I prefer an illustration. I was reviewing a few books on hand planes, and if I compared Chris Shaw's pictorial to a, a diagram, sometimes in a picture, you know, if, unless it's a brilliantly taken large color picture, you're not seeing the kind of detail. I mean, when, when Watson goes through and he shows you how to dovetail, it, it's very clear what kind of cuts you're taking. You, you don't have to 
look at the picture and try and figure out is Chris holding the bevel up or bevel down for that picture? We've gone from A to B, but I don't know how many choppings he did between. I mean, Watson's got some of those techniques where there's eight or 10 or 12 pictures that just illustrate step by step. And by the time you've worked your way through those, you know how to uh, do them. I mean, there's a few pages where I found it a little bit funny that you sort of to follow the numbers one, two, three, four, five because of the way he's put them on the page, but they're absolutely there and they, you know, will make the techniques clear. And there was some stuff that was quite interesting. I mean, you know, talking of, of dovetails, you, you'll use a triangular file to, um, it was exactly a point I was going to bring up. Yeah. Oh, I can't believe you that, I, that I've, have you ever heard anyone else ever give that recommendation? I've never heard it. And the moment I saw it, you, you know, the, those sort of sublime, brilliant things that you say, gee, I must make a note of this and picked up hand tools. And, you know, I was just skimming through it um, because it's probably been about 18 months since I read it. Mm-hmm. And I've got these little dog-eared pages, you know, and I was like, oh, you know, there's a saw handle template in here that, uh, that I'm, I'm meaning to get to. You know, skimming through the book, you go, bang, you know, there's something in there that I noted. And there's just page after page after page where there's something that he's put down that is sublime and, and interesting and not a rehash of the same conversations in the same chat rooms and the same articles. It's clear that he went out there, he did research with people that were actually doing the work at the time, and he's documented that. And he himself was a woodworker as well. So he's not um, just talking from research. He has personal experience. I think the point that you just made about the same points over and over again, the, the irony of the internet is that it should be providing us with this huge wealth of information. But what gets end up, what happens more often is it's an echo chamber where the same ideas are repeated over and over again, and they get calcified to the point where anyone who has a different idea is dismissed. You see that especially in YouTube, someone makes a video on a certain idea and many other people will then follow that. So one of the reasons that I'm so interested in books and why I was delighted to discover your podcast, because I think one of the best things woodworking teachers can do is go back to books. They have such a wealth of ideas and you can import those into the modern electronic environment and get so much more information. And looking looking at those books, I mean, they certainly, for me, they take me back to a different time. I mean, there's this spirit of uh, a jack-of-all-trades, if I can call it that, or, or a frontiersman. I think the fact that he focuses on country woodwork is really important because only the country woodworker had the ability to be the jack-of-all-trades. If you had been, even in the 17th and 18th century, if you had been a urban woodworker, you would have been hyper-specialized. So it's very likely you would have done only carvings or even only carvings on chairs, and that would have been your entire job. So the type of woodworker that Watson points out here, who is somebody who had a bench and had a lathe and might have even done a little bit of smithing or metal repair, that was only a rural phenomenon. Cities didn't support people like that. And that person is a really close analog to the modern hobby woodworker. Most woodworkers I know have a couple of power tools, they have a lathe, they have some hand tools, they do a little bit of cabinet work, they dabble in some carving, they do a little bit of everything. So the the rural woodworker of 200 years ago was so similar to the modern hobby woodworker. There's another book, I don't know if you've read, oh, Hands Employed Aright. That's a magnificent book. Probably the second most influential on me after Country Furniture. 
to tell you how much I enjoyed Hands Employed All Right, I must tell you that I also went and bought a book called Jonathan Fisher, Maine Parson, which was written by um, one of his descendants, uh, Mary Ellen Chase. And it's just the history of the man. You know, I picked that up and read it because that's such a phenomenal story. I mean, I, I think that Jonathan Fisher, if he had not been called to go, uh, you know, into the Blue Hills and, and do what he did, it strikes me that he could have been another Ben Franklin or Leonardo da Vinci. He was incredibly clever. He had an unbelievable work ethic, you know, and, and obviously very strong convictions. When when you read that, it's un, unbelievable. It is a profound uh, book, and I, it makes me very proud to think that people like him, of his level of ingenuity and intellect and education, he was a Yale educated, if I recall, Yale or Harvard, um, was a woodworker, and he was proudly a woodworker. And one of the things I find most interesting about that book is many of the tools they've found, they don't even know what they did because he was such a relentless inventor. And that's something that most hobby woodworkers I know really have in common is they invent a lot of stuff. They invent their own tools and work holding solutions. And like you said before about problem solving and the similarity to the software industry, woodwork, and I, I do blacksmithing too, which is very similar. It requires you to be constantly innovating and thinking your way around problems. It's, it's the heart of both crafts. I often wondered to myself whether or not, you know, it would have been fun to live at those times. And I think that there's probably a, an element of romanticizing, you know, how hard these guys' lives were. Having said that, just looking at them in terms of that ability to spend a bit of their life crafting the stuff around them. And I guess there's modern comparisons, you know, um, Copperthwaite talks about his democratic acts and, you know, how everyone should be able to have access to things like that. And I know that the whole theme, I guess, of anarchists tool chest is, mm. is really around giving you those skills. And I hope one day my boys will have the skill that when they've got time on their hands at varsity, that they will think of going and buying some pine and making some furniture. They won't sit there and go, gee, I've got no furniture for my house. In that context, that's again why the skills and, and the and the discussion in something like Country Furniture, or you mentioned Pine Furniture of New England, that mm. those books are really great because no matter your skill level, if you're going to sit down and do a Chippendale high boy, that's a chunk of your life invested in that. You're not going to you're not going to chuck twenty of those out. Um, but I needed a step stool the other day, and you know I picked up. Uh, we've got SA Pine here. It's it's really it's white pine. You know by any other name, it's got the Janker hardness of cardboard. So, you know, working with that, it was an absolute pleasure. I could just sit there and I could spend a couple of hours. I could put something together. I've got nice tight dovetails on it. And I look at it and I go, wow, this is an underrated way of making furniture. It's not pretentious. It's not expensive hardwoods. It doesn't have this huge dependency on painstaking work to get it out there. It's got this honest, fit for purpose, get it done kind of feel. That's a great skill for anyone to have. Whether you aspire to do woodworking as a hobby where you want to really push yourself or not, I think an ability for everyone on the planet to get up one day and say, I need a chair, I can knock together a, a stool, a joint, you know, a simple joint stool, or I can knock together a simple table that's got four legs and it can function. I think that that would change a lot of people's attitudes to the sort of disposable, throwaway furniture that you just mm -hmm. go and buy and and you can't afford what you want, so you get it and then... Five years later, you can afford what you want and you buy that, but now you aspire to something else because your friend's got something better. And I mean, that whole spiral is an ugly spiral in terms of devaluing anything and continually feeling like you have this deep need to get something better. Whereas if we all had the skills by 
18 to knock together a chair. There's an element of pride in a chair that you made, regardless of uh, of the quality. And if if you're better in 10 years' time and you want to make a better chair, fantastic. But you you won't easily take that chair and say, oh, I'm just going to replace it now because you know it's, it was cheap and I bought it and now I can afford something better. I think there's a there's a more wholesome ethos in making furniture like that. There is. I you know you mentioned the 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 Chippendale High Boy. And, you know, there's, there's a couple important things about that. One of them is that when I look at those, the first thing I think is, my goodness, that's hideous. I, I really can't tell you how gaudy and awful I think that style of furniture is. And it would look ridiculous in my house. I can't imagine having something like that in my home. And I appreciate the craftsmanship and the skill that's required, but I wouldn't want the piece when it was done. And I think it, you and I were talking a moment ago about the huge number of different aspects of woodworking. These days, we call ourselves woodworkers. I think one of the problems is what most people are aspiring to be is cabinet makers. So Chippendale would have most likely referred to himself as a cabinet maker and his work, a high boy, a low boy, a chest of drawers, all these things, this was cabinet work. And that was a particular kind of work that was done to a very high standard and done for extremely rich people. And at least I could say in, in America, most woodworkers understand woodwork as being synonymous with cabinet work. And they don't understand that there was joinery and there was green woodworking and there was country carpentry and there were a whole number of different ways of approaching furniture and furnishing your life that don't involve driving yourself insane trying to make everything look perfect. And it's been a real process for me to try and free myself of that notion of like the, the Chippendale cabinet, the veneered approach, perfect dovetails on everything. And there's such a huge world of nice things you can make. I made a, a box for my wife recently with nailed rabbits as the joinery. No glue, no dovetails. I just rabbited the sides and nailed it together. And it was to keep mittens in, in the wintertime. And she loves it. She adores it. And if I had dovetailed it together, she would not have noticed. She wanted a box for the wall. And I added some decorations. I cut some decorations into it. That was enough to make it pretty. The joinery would have gone completely unnoticed. It wasn't, wasn't worth doing. Well, good for you on that. I certainly find from my side that it's quite difficult. You know, I think Instagram generation, the YouTube generation, whatever you want to call it, I'm constantly bombarded with the most spectacular dovetail. But that creates the impression that that is the only way to do a dovetail versus seeing, um, like in Hands Employed or Right, where you see these examples of really rough work. Yeah, and I look in uh, antique stores frequently, and when I look at the actual furniture that's for sale in antique stores, the dovetails are functional, and that's it. Um, the, the craftsmen put much more effort into making the mortise and tenons very tight and perfect. And the look of the joint was obviously not important. And I think many craftsmen of a bygone era would be utterly confused that we spend so much time admiring the look of joinery. They were much more interested in function and proportion and durability. And I, I feel like most woodworkers should be thinking much harder about the, the unity of the piece and how it looks as a whole these kind of pornographic shots of the details, they're not moving the hobby forward. They're just making it seem unapproachable. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, there's also some historical records where the guys talk about it and, you know, people are doing joinery quite quickly in their, in their apprenticeship. 
but they're not being allowed to touch finishing until they've been there for a good number of years. And it's it's yeah. quite funny is the people talk about finishing as this, you know, this almost this grudge skill that you've kind of got to go and get. And then we've got dovetails on the other hand, which people are saying, oh, that's the absolute pinnacle of the hobby. And and I think the historical record differed completely on that. It was you put the dovetail together to keep the box together, and that can be gappy. That can have cuts across the baseline. Um, you know, it could really look quite messy as long as it does its intended purpose. And then you mm. look at the show surfaces and you you look at the effort that they put into to doing that. And they, they really spend their time there where, you know, we seem to run off to a, well, I don't have one anymore, but run off to an orbital sander and uh, give it a brief, brief go at that and then finish it quickly and then wonder why it didn't look, you know, uh, as, as perfect as we would have hoped it to have looked. Yeah, I admit I'm still... Very fond of my orbital sander. It's one of the power tools that still gets used a fair bit in my shop for speed because of how quick it is to get things done. I love hand tools, but I admit I am no purist about it. There are some situations where a power tool makes things happen much more efficiently, and I'm, I'm not afraid to grab one still, although a lot less than I did a few years ago. I've got a 10-year-old whose nickname is Fingers, and we've got a little mouse sander that he plays with, and I don't use that much anymore, but he loves it. I sit there and go, I'm not likely to visit the emergency ward if he's playing with the mouse sander. And I, I think that's another area of the craft where not just craftspeople themselves, but also tool manufacturers who sponsor a lot of the content, they really want to downplay that you're you're dealing with machinery that can maim you for life. And it happens to people all the time. Uh, I put a thumb into my table saw blade once and just blew the tip of my thumb apart. And it took a, a fair amount of medical intervention to get that back together so I have a functioning thumb tip again. Uh, and that was a very minor accident. People have cut off their entire hand on a table yeah. saw. And I think particularly if you're doing a little bit of hobby work or making a little furniture, there is no reason to even risk a finger doing that. That's lunacy. And I, I think that what really happens, and I wish people could be more honest about this, is that power tools don't just uh, save you work. They don't just save you physical effort. They also give you kind of effortless accuracy uh, without having to learn very much in the way of skills. And I think even some very advanced woodworkers, people who make very advanced projects, would be at a loss without their machinery because they don't know how to do anything accurately without a machine. I, I myself was in that exact category only a few years ago, and it's really just since I've been teaching people woodworking that I've had to sort of reboot my whole process, and I've started doing uh, entire projects totally by hand, entirely with hand tools, and I've really come to the conclusion that the machine-only woodworker is simply not as skilled as the hand tool woodworker. The hand tool woodworker is going to progress much more slowly in the craft, but will know much more and be more versatile. I can't think of any operation I can't do with hand tools, but some of the, the jigging and guards necessary to do simple operations with power tools is very extensive. So I, I do think the power tools are great. I will, especially my, uh, my bandsaw, probably still gets more use than anything else because it'll handle a long rip cut. And when I have to rip a 10-foot oak board, I have the skill to do it by hand, but I, I don't have the time. I have to get a video out. So for very large operations like that, I'm still quite likely to go to the bandsaw just to handle those things. But the temptation is then to use the power tool to even handle the detail work. 
And that's where I have to use some self-discipline and say, I'm not going to go the easy route with this. I'm not going to go to the table saw with this. I'm going to take a little extra time or even risk a few bad cuts. Maybe I'll have to redo it, but I'm going to develop those hand skills instead. Yeah. The hand skills, I mean, they definitely take a little bit of time, but it's, it's amazing how little time it takes to actually get yeah. moderately competent. I think, I think most power tool woodworkers who are exclusively power tool woodworkers would be very surprised at what a weekend's worth of practice with a handsaw would get them. And the sheer convenience, I used to have a radial arm saw. I never had a table saw. But, sure. you know, when you're trying to get four pieces to the exact same size, you know, that you start having to learn that trick where you butt up against the blade and deflect the blade a little bit to take a tiny bit off. And I sit there and I go, yeah, give it two passes with the block plane and see if it's if it fits. And if it doesn't, I'll give it two more passes and, and it'll fit. So, you know, it's probably quite well known. But the other thing is also you, you just kind of almost remove curves from your entire repertoire because you mm. you sit there and you go, well, now I'm going to build furniture and I'm, I'm used to making things that are the same length and go together in a 90 degrees or they square or they're T-joint. And that's the stuff I can do. And I'll take great pride in getting my dado set to work absolutely perfectly so that my shelves can fit and all the rest of it. But what projects can't you do? You know, putting a stool together with, let's say, an offset round mortise and tenon. I don't even know how you'd begin to approach trying to do something like that on power tools. I'm making a wood screw vice for my bench at the moment. So I had to oh, make the handles. Yeah. yeah. And I want to come back to that in the context of your joiner's bench. You know, putting that together and just saying, well, I can work in the round with that. Got a little turning saw. I've got a, a old coping saw type setup that you can say, well, l let me take this and let me go and do something with it. You know, and let's, let's add in a, a round element on the side of a step or a saw tool or whatever. Whereas if I was doing that with power tools, it would have been very hard for me and not claiming to have the best experience with it, but it would have been hard for me to bring those kind of elements in, into what I do. No, and I, I would even say I, I'm, I'm an avid turner myself and it's felt to me for a while now that the turning that I do a lot of the time, I wouldn't even call it woodwork. It's a, it's a pure fine art endeavor a lot of the time. And I could, I could see in my old age, not even doing woodwork anymore, but keeping up with turning because it's very easy on the body if you're doing it well, and you can make things that are very beautiful, even if they're completely impractical. I'm very much looking forward to building a foot powered lathe. Uh, as part of my hand tool series on YouTube. And I'm really interested to see what it's going to be like to learn turning at that much slower speed. I'm used to having yep. a lathe that's powerful and big. And it's really funny because on one level, I'm looking forward to learning to do it with a spring pole lathe or a foot powered lathe. But on the other hand, I'm definitely saving money for a very large and powerful electric lathe that probably won't even be in my videos very much. I just love to turn and I want to have a big uh, high horsepower lathe so I can take large pieces of wood and make beautiful objects with them. It doesn't even have to do with my business. It's just a creative calling that I feel. I think I mentioned to you, I'm on Shannon Rogers' hand tool school, so I'm, I'm going through oh. his semesters and he's got a spring pole lathe and a treadle lathe. So mm. I was buy, buying a bunch of parts for the treadle lathe and then I'm trying to find a local blacksmith to make me a few of the parts that I need. And while I was in that process, I decided that dust in the shop was too much. So I saw a shop sale on dust extractors. Uh, they had this jet dust extractor at a good rate. So I went in to go and buy it. And the guy said, sorry, no, we're closing the shop down and we don't have that in stock anymore. He says, is there anything else you're interested in? And they had this uh, Comet 2 lathe sitting over there. <laughs> so I had to go home and say to my wife, uh, 
You know that uh, dust extraction thing that I went to go buy? Well, <laughs> it, it spins at 2,000 revs and, <laughs> and it makes I'm afraid I've purchased something that's going to make the dust situation much, much worse <laughs> yeah. instead of much better. Sorry, I messed that up. Yeah. So I ended up with one of those and really having a, a lot of fun with it. I'll throw, I'll throw an idea your way just on the spring pole lathe because I, I thought about it a lot and particularly in the context of the kids, I, you know, I felt it was a safer option. Eventually, what sort of sold me on the treadle lathe was I worked out that if the belt isn't too tight, the belt would just slip off the flywheel and basically bring it to a halt. So I decided, okay, I'll go, I'll go that route. But something that I'm still very keen to do, I'm a mountain biker as one of my other sports, but I thought of putting a bicycle free hub on the side of that so that sure. you could make a spring pole, a spring pole lathe that doesn't have the reciprocating action. You know, So mm-hmm. I, it looks like it's a, a simple design, easy to do. And, and if you just put a you know, cheap bike part on the side there, you could have something that you know, spins in a more conventional manner. So I, I think I'm going to play with one of those in, you know, in a couple of years' time and yeah, give that I, a go. I think you should, especially with those parts being not very expensive. I used to yeah. bike to work personally uh, i did five miles each way every day so i had a pretty nice bike at that point and i was i often looked at the bike and thought hmm what could i do with some of these parts in the home shop and uh, you know old lathes especially metal lathes from a hundred years ago some of them had a bike seat and bike pedals and instead of a treadle mechanism you pedaled them so yeah. it's um it, it's an idea that that has worked practically before so i definitely think you should pursue that and Rex, from your side, I mean, you, you've written a book on turning, so can we expect, a, expect an update sometime when you, when you do a spring pole and a treadle lathe to put that into the book and get another edition out there? Well, so I can't, uh, I can't talk about this too much yet because we're far away from release, but I have just recently signed a contract with a large publisher to put out my second book. Oh, and it fantastic. won't be, okay. oh, thank you. Um, and it won't be specifically focused on wood turning. It'll be more of a general woodworking book about hand tool work. And that will be out in January or February of next year. So about a year from now, that'll be out. I'm just writing it right now. Uh, we only finalized the contract just last month. So I'm actually very excited about that. My, my previous book was self-published. And I would recommend that experience to anyone because it allows you to get the book out and um, I've had a lot of great feedback from that book, and it earns me a little bit of money every month, which is very helpful, and it didn't really cost me anything to put it out. I just had to work very hard on it for about six months, and the book came out, and now I'm going to try a different experience where I'm going to write the book and take the pictures and then just send it off to the publisher, and then hopefully a book comes out the other end. It's all a little mysterious to me still, but we're going to give that a try. Well, we'll probably touch base in a year. I'll be interested in your experience. I published a school history book about a decade ago, um, really? and I can tell you it's quite quite interesting to work with publishers. And 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 we we did a book where there were six authors contributing different chapters. So mm-hmm. just working in that environment and uh, getting it together and proofreading and art and design, I, I think it'll be an interesting process for you. So I, I'll I'll bookmark that. We'll we'll chat when that comes out, and you can share some experience that. with us on that. That'll be that'll be awesome. Yeah, um, I'm excited about it. I think it's a fantastic experience, um, and it's also it's quite it's quite a nice one in terms of front loading because I guess you do the you do a lot of hard work for it, and and it felt to me like I did all that work, and then it just went into this black hole for two years, and then you know one day suddenly there's a royalty check in the mail, and you just go wow yeah I remember writing that a couple right, of years ago I did that now yeah. I'm getting so many yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's very interesting. Luckily, self and self publishing is wonderful that way because Amazon actually pays me every month. 
So yep. I, I get a portion of the proceeds and it's a healthy portion instead of being a very small amount and it just yep. comes in. So, and I think uh, that for what we do, writing books is so essential. Video has taken over the woodworking world. And in many ways, I think that's appropriate because video is a better teaching tool than books are for learning specific techniques. But videos don't allow you to get into the depth and detail that you need. And videos, 10-minute videos, 15-minute videos, they encourage a very surface-level treatment of very complicated topics. And I think yeah. you have to have the two things together. I watch YouTube woodworking videos in enormous amounts. But then in my evenings, I turn the computer off and I read. And it's only the two things together that really bring me the kind of information that I need to get better in the craft. You know, it's funny, some of the books that I've been reviewing, I've got a Kindle version and then I bought a physical copy and then I ended up buying an Audible copy of it. So, you know, I've, I've got some books where I own three formats of it. And mm. if, if the book is good, I think there's a very different appeal in each one of the formats. So a physical book in front of the fire, you know, just downtime and just relaxing or looking out over the sea or something like that, it's a completely different experience from even having it on a Kindle. And I, I love the volume of books I can get on a Kindle. But let's take country furniture as an example. There's no way that I think you can process that without being able to flip backwards and forwards from the diagrams, move from one section to the other. So there's there's certain books that I think lend themselves to different formats. And then, you know, even to the, to the audio books, uh, I found that if I listen to a book in the car and I'm forced, you know, I literally cannot race through the book because I have to listen then I can think about it for eight hours at work, you know, before you're know, in the, sorry, not the whole eight hours, but I can think about it for a bit of time at work and then, you know, pick up where I left off in the evenings and maybe listen to another hour on the commute. It's got a very different way of, of sinking in compared to a, a book that you read. So I think, you know, we live in the golden age of media. I, I think mm -hmm. that considering any one of them to be exclusively the best is probably you know, not true. And like, you know, I mean, a physical demonstration of some stuff is probably the, the next best thing to having a personal coach. But if you, if you want to sit and read, you know, history, or you want to go through the wood encyclopedia, I've got the, the physical copy of that as well, you know, or, or even uh, understanding wood. I think those are completely mm. different to an internet resource that might have exactly the same thing, but can't page through it. You can't reference it. You can't make notes on it. You can't read it and, you know, access it in quite the same way. Books, and I find hard copy books, like you're saying, they also, they invite you to stop and contemplate what you're reading. So when I'm reading a really good book like Country Furniture or like uh, Hands Employed or Write, there is such a strong urge to stop and put the book down and think about what I've read for a moment and understand how it applies to my own work and then just take a minute and enjoy the ideas that pop up. Um, in Hands Employed to Write, Jonathan Fisher built a really fascinating miter saw out of a very thin-looking frame saw. And as soon yeah. as I saw that, the ideas just started exploding in my head. And I had to put the book down and just stare off into space for 20 minutes as I considered, because not only did he build it, but it's very clear that he used it a lot. But it's a very different-looking tool than I've seen almost anywhere. And to see that that existed and it got a lot of use, I thought, oh, my goodness, I could build something like this or like this or like this, and it could look this way. And he did this with it, but I could do this other thing with it. And only a physical book is going to give me that ability to stop and think. And, yeah. and that's why I think that they're, they're really important. I was shocked when I got into this and started doing it how many books there were. I had no idea that people had been writing books about woodworking for hundreds of years.
just it blew my mind. It still does how much is out there. And I think I'll probably never read all the really good books there are out there on the craft. Thank goodness there's shows like yours that help us figure out which ones are worth our time. You speak about how many books there are. I've probably bought a hundred books now over the last two years. And I think there's some incredible books and then there's some quite superficial ones. So I think if you can find those good ones and you know, you sort of mentioned those sort of single topic deep dive books. I think that, you know, I, I don't know, we'll use maybe uh, Flex Non-Finishing as an example. There's a book oh, that it's an excellent didn't, book. Mm. didn't try and do everything, try to teach you how to do one aspect really, really well. And I think books like that are going to, uh, you know, just live on forever. I think by the same token, we're going to get these other ones that are, you know, I don't know, a- advertorials, if we can call it for the hobby, that will just skim across a couple of basic techniques. And the reality is, is you can't take that to the workshop and do anything with it. So yeah, hopefully we can read more of the good ones and, you know, avoid the, <laughs> avoid the ones that uh, are, are, are superficial. Okay, Woodworms. So this is a logical place to break the interview and I'm going to stop it here. When we come back next week for the remainder of the podcast, we've got a bit more of me and Rex discussing things. And after that, I'll get into the review of Country Furniture. Hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Mm-hmm.